as you know, the three of us were watching the director's cut, uh, and as much as I think the theatrical cut was spectacular, uh, I was blown away at how much better the director's cut is. I mean, it just it breathes. It leaves in elements that I realize how much I missed. Um, it is a page by page adaptation of the book, truly. And so I'm fascinated when when you see a director's cut come after a theatrical cut about what the conversations are between you and the studio. Do, do they single out things that they say you have to take out, even though you know that they work? Or do they give you a, a runtime and say, hey, we really got to hit two and a half, take out what you need to to get there? Well, it, it, I don't know what it's like for other people. And this is a weird situation, I think, because, you know, the, the conversation about releasing the director's cut happened very early. Um, we, it was while we were still very early, in fact, in the process of cutting the theatrical cut. So um, what they said to me wasn't, you have to hit a certain uh, runtime. What they said was, we'd really prefer not to go over a certain runtime. Um, and that was two and a half hours, uh, which even even that, I think, for a major studio, um, for a film of, of this size was was pretty crazy. And I think only really a reaction to how it performed. I think without that, they would have probably wanted it shorter. Mm. Um, so, so the way it kind of went down was um, they, I, I think there was a lot of eagerness about, about the film and a lot of, you know, there were high expectations with us and with, with Warner Brothers from the jump. And um, it was clear that I had a lot of material. I mean, that first cut came in at a little more than three hours. And um, kind of from the beginning, they were like, would you be interested in, in preserving that cut? Um, and we could just work on it in tandem with the theatrical cut. So oh, it, it wasn't, that's awesome. yeah, we, we didn't go back and do it after the fact. It was all, they were running parallel. Mm-hmm. And what that did for me that was so cool, and I've never had an experience like this, is when we'd come up against things to cut for time, you know, they never would say, you have to cut this. They'd always say, we, we feel like this part might be running a little long and, you know, from from our experience watching it, we thought maybe this part of the of the movie was a little little slow. Have you considered backing that up? And then I'd have these moments where where I'd normally be reluctant and really kind of be like, oh, I really don't want to lose that. I, I had this safety net that I knew eventually the director's cut would come out. So <laughs> so it was like, well, I'm not really killing anything. I'm, I'm yeah. just delaying it. Um, and so my executives were, uh, I, I would say, unnaturally kind and supportive of that because, you know, they would always say, you know, we, we will make sure that it's properly, or, or if we were cutting something like the, uh, the red bathroom scene at the overlook, um, which is a, actually a visual effect heavy scene. Mm-hmm. And I would say, look, if we're going to kick that out, you know, I just want to make sure we're going to finish those effects properly for the mm-hmm. director's cut. And they said, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it was a very weird. What a it, healthy it way to do backwards. it. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great, <laughs> well, and it was awkward because like at the time, you know, the release of the Snyder Cut movement was in full force, and mm. I'm seeing that go on, and I'm like, oh crap! Like this is a this is awkward because it, it it was just never really a question for us, and I think you know their their situation is completely different from ours. I never heard anything to indicate that there was resistance to that cut in Warner's. I think it was just more about how to actually get it done. Right. Where for us, it was like, it was right there. We had everything. So. Very funny that you mentioned that, uh, Mike, that's the book that I just wrote. <laughs> really? It's, it's called release the Snyder cut. And it's about that entire process. It wow. comes, out, comes out next year. So, uh, yeah, 
I'm fascinated to read that book. I want to know all about that. He will sell you a copy. <laughs> Mike, I will autograph your copy. <laughs> I would love that. Um, Mike, uh, this is the douchiest way to start a question, but I'm going to do it because it makes me sound really cool. So you and I were at a party together in Colorado because um, the, the Stanley uh, event that Warner Brothers had was incredible. And you told me what I thought was the most amazing story, and I've repeated it so many times, that uh, when in the early talks with Stephen King, that he gave you two really big stipulations. And um, they both kind of ended up involving sort of the third act. And I was wondering if you remember that story or could, could talk to about what those two stipulations were. Because when I think about how much I love the ending of this movie, it didn't almost, it, you know, you can make the argument almost didn't happen. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, from from the jump, the the big controversy of this adaptation was going to be the ending. And in particular, the the overlook. Um, and, you know, if, if you've read the book, you know that uh, oh, both books, really. I mean, if you've read The Shining, you know, one of the big changes that Kubrick made was was that Jack didn't sacrifice himself to destroy the overlook at the end of The Shining. Mm. Um it, which is a pretty sizable difference. And um, mm. and I think at the heart of, of King's very complicated feelings about the Kubrick film is about, um, you know, he wrote it as a, I, I believe anyway, he wrote it as, as an examination of his fear of what his alcoholism could do to his family. And he wrote himself hope and redemption and sacrifice at the end. None of none of that is present in the Kubrick film. And, mm. um, and I think that that, cause you know, things always get changed. Things always get, you know, adjusted in translation between the two mediums and a filmmaker is going to have a different perspective on a story than, than the author of the book it's based on. Um, but I think that was a bridge too far on a personal level for him. Mm. Um, and so he opens Dr. Sleep, the novel with just like, like out the gate, just completely, undoes what Kubrick did yeah. so just to, to unambiguously say the hotel burned down. Jack died, saving his family. Um, mm-hmm. Dick Halloran's alive. The end, you know, and that we're going to start there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so, um, you know, when we, when I was first kind of having the very early conversations about this, I would talk about, how strange it was for me as a fan of a super fan of King and, and an acolyte of Kubrick to kind of feel that tension growing up with this, these two versions of the story that I love so much. Um, and that my feeling when I read the novel was that I loved Dan, I loved Abra, I loved the true knot. I loved everything about it, but I was hungry to go back to the overlook at the end. And that I, I felt like he defiantly avoided it, that, that it was, you know, he even staged the final battle, on the empty campground that used to be the overlook. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's like, it's right there. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I knew that was going to be the problem, but um, you know, the, his initial responses to everything was, you know, no overlook, um, no Kubrick. Uh, and the, the pitch that, that we made to, to him was, you know, as someone who grew up with the film, when I, when I read Dr. Sleep, I see the visual language of Kubrick. That's when, when you say overlook, that's the hotel that I see. Yeah. When you say Wendy, I, I, I see Shelley Duvall. It, it's just the way it works in my brain. Um, I feel like I'm not alone there. And mm. I feel like we have to use the same language if, if we're making a cinematic follow-up. Um, 
so how about what if the overlook wasn't burned down? Um, what if we could go back? And he's no, no. And um, he he reacted, but but the thing that kind of turned him around, he reacted for sure. Uh, and then the thing that kind of turned him around was the um, the pitch of Danny walks into the overlook, it goes to the bar, sits down. Mm. You know, the bartender in in the familiar uh, in the familiar tux hands him a drink and, and the bartenders is dead. Um, and that kind of, that changed the conversation. And, and mm. uh, he came back and said, okay, do that. And then if you're going to do that, you know, do it, do the overlook, more overlook, the better. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the secondary kind of argument that we made after that was, which he recognized when he saw the draft was that, you know, the ending of, of this turned out to be the ending of the shining of the mm -hmm. novel. Mm -hmm. um, and it was that really awkward thing of being like, I know you were upset that Kubrick changed the ending. So I'm going to, I'm just going to change the ending, <laughs> but I'm going to change it to something you're going to, you're going to like a lot better. I hope. Yeah. Um, and, and he did, but, uh, but yeah, th those were kind of the big, um, that, that, that was the nature of the conversation. Were those the two stipulations that I told you at the party? Yeah. Yeah. You told yeah. me that okay. uh, he, he didn't want the overlook and to not change, basically not change the ending. So, so in theory, like yeah, Danny, yeah. Danny would have survived, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Mike, my next, my next question was more technical, but, um, I'm, I, and it was going to be, I, this question I'm about to follow up with is, was lower in my notes. So I apologize, but I'm, I have to follow up with it now because of the answer you just gave. Um, I'm just genuinely curious what are your thoughts about Stephen King's thoughts about The Shining in the sense of does it do you agree with Stephen King's criticisms of The Shining? Because for me, I have not read The Shining book. I, I will admit that I am I am I'm, I'm a pure from a film perspective. I've only seen the films of these stories. Um, these two have read the books. Uh, they're much bigger uh, book readers and King fans than I was growing up. So for me, The Shining is the ultimate story. And Dr. Sleep is now the ultimate story. These are the two defining things that I see. Do you personally agree with Stephen King or not about the, about the Shining's issues? Oh, I, I, that is such a complicated question. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be really fun to watch me try to like <laughs> my way through this. All right. Um, so the uh, the short answer is, as an adaptation of the book, I agree with him um, that the the adaptation is not a great adaptation of the novel. Where I disagree is that I think despite that, it is a brilliant piece of cinema and one of the most mm -hmm. important horror movies ever made. Um, so that is the schizophrenia that I've experienced <laughs> as a fan growing up <laughs> of having to you know, say, yes, it's absolutely right. Um, Jack Torrance in the film is not Jack Torrance from the novel. They are not the same character. Um, the message and the heart and soul of The Shining, the novel, is not present in the film. Mm. The film's about something different. Uh, the film's about different people. Mm -hmm. The film takes a lot of the mechanics uh, of the novel and completely reconceives them, puts them in a different configuration. And naturally that machine creates a different product. It, it, it drives to a whole different destination. Mm -hmm. One that I find just as thrilling, mm -hmm. um, memorable, influential, complex, you know, beautifully artistically uh, rendered, this masterpiece of, of, of horror filmmaking. Um, so I agree with him. And at the same time, <laughs> if it had been, if it had been my book, I probably 
would share the venom that he has for the for the, for the film, but it wasn't. And so I love the film, and and mm. I've had this weird like mom and dad are fighting feeling um, <laughs> <laughs> for my whole life. So uh, so part of this movie, I mean, it, you, know, you can look at Doctor Sleep as this parent trap that's meant to kind of like force them all back together, <laughs> yeah. force them back together so we can all get along. But, um, it's so true. <laughs> Twin Dannys. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah. So I I. I think his feelings about it are complicated too, because I, I think as he's gotten older and um, it, his, his feelings that he stated about it in the past don't jive with the way he's, he's described how he feels about adaptations yeah. to me, mm. um, which is a very, he, he has a very fascinating outlook on it where, you know, he has a lot of approvals when it comes to setting up, an adaptation, you know, who's writing it, who's directing it, who's acting in it, um, the script itself, the whole vision for the whole thing. But after that is over, he really leaves you alone. And he makes a big point to say, this is your movie. Um, I'm not here to interfere. And I'm just going to let you make your movie. And, and what he said to me when he saw Dr. Sleep was that uh, he looks at it as he wins either way. That If the movie's bad, people will say the book was better. And if the movie's good, people will say, well, yeah, it's based on a really good book. <laughs> so he, he can't lose. Um, but, but that isn't how historically he's, he's talked about The Shining. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that that's because, because of how personal that story is to him. I, I think the insult wasn't in the changes that are made to an, an adaptation. I've seen other King adaptations that make changes just as big, if not bigger, that he's, he seemed to be just fine with. The mist, the oh, ending of the, the mist. mist. Yes, hey, yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, yes. perfect ending. He even said he was like, it's, "I wish I'd thought of that ending." Yeah, you know, I. So I've seen I've seen him throughout his career react very differently. I it, I think to me it speaks to how personal this particular story is to him. Um, before I ask my next question, Mike, I just I need to know as a fan, which you clearly are. Like, have you come to terms with the fact that your filmography has? like thick black lines connecting it to the shining. Like you'll, you'll for always have a thick black line connecting your filmography to the shining. You can speak openly about the shining and about Stephen King's work around your work. And that has to be supernatural almost. God, you know, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it that succinctly before. Uh, that's wild. Um, there, there were, yeah, I mean, I guess there, there were certainly times when me and, and Trevor, uh, my, Trevor Macy, my producer, and, and um, Mike Finignari, my DP, we, we've been together since Oculus, really. There were times where we'd, we'd kind of hit these periods of quiet on set and we'd look at each other and giggle and, and be like, we're making the sequel to the We shot. do that a lot, too. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah, like it's... it's that, like we're that, talking to Mike Flanagan right now. That's how we geek out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to do with that. I'm just like, oh, guys, <laughs> aim higher. Yeah. I'm easy. I'm easy to find. Uh, the, but yeah, I, I would definitely have the those weird moments of of kind of realizing we were in the same room with The Shining. Mm. Um, I, I, I always felt though that like King and Kubrick are these kind of titans uh, and we were very little like we we got to kind of perch on their shoulders here and there and and that was really exciting but 
you know, we were, we were in these huge shadows of, of these giant iconic, you know, an iconic novel, an iconic film. And yeah. we were just kind of like getting to sneak in and do our little, little song and dance and then run out of the room before someone like squashed us. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, it is pretty wild. Uh, and to hear you put it that way is pretty insane. All right. I'm going to, um, I'll just, Jake, before I cut you off, I'm so sorry about this. Um, the true knot. I, I mean, I'm fascinated by the true knot in general as characters and, you know, the visual of the true knot, bringing them to the screen and their bohemian sort of look about them. Um, we just lost Joel Schumacher. When I rewatched the director's cut, it reminded me very much of, of the vampires from Santa Clara. And I just, I, I wanted to know if that movie means anything to you. Did it, re- did it represent how you brought the, the true knot to the screen? Because, you know, we're talking timeless vampires essentially. And, and they've just had that sort of tone to them. Oh yeah. No, I, look, I love that film. First mm-hmm. of all, you know, um, one, one thing about Santa Clara, uh, all the damn vampires, like the, um, <laughs> uh, the, I, I, I loved that film growing up. Uh, what I loved about the vampires in Lost Boys is how they feel contemporary and old at the same time, which, right. which not only so beautifully ties in with, you know, the reference the title is making um, to the, to Neverland and to yeah. the, the kids that never grow up, but how, you know, you look at, 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 um, at Edward Herman in that, uh, who plays a very unexpected kind of, prime vampire you know right. um and down to like he almost looks like matt smith in in doctor who like yeah. down to the tweed and the bow tie and yeah um yeah like uh, but but certainly I, I i think with with these guys in the book um there were a bunch of references we kicked around we talked about near dark a bunch mm-hmm. you know we mm-hmm. talked about uh we, we talked a little bit about the various kind of incarnations of vampires that you see in, in interview with the vampire, um, especially when you get into France. And even though they, they've all kind of been cursed with the long hair, the, the like nineties pit hair, you know, it, it, um, <laughs> it, it still kind of led us to this interesting approach to them where if you're trying to live through long periods of time in, in different generations and different decades, while also blending in to a certain extent, how do you carry keepsakes and influences from different periods of fashion and different things like that with you mm. without looking dated? Mm. Um, and in the book, they're way more, they're in disguise in the book. They're actively dressing in this kind of um, trailer RV community. Uh, there's a lot of like ultra conservative and Republican t-shirts and hats and stuff in the book. Um, cheesy like fishing hats and like they're really going for like we're the harmless old retirees yeah, yeah. on the road yeah um and our feeling was that that could be funny um mm. that that didn't blend in really the way i think it was intended to mm. visually and what we liked more was that like they would collect little knickknacks through all the eras that they lived in and and they become these little um kind of mood boards uh and mm. So you have like Zon McLarnon's got artifacts and, and belt buckles and stuff that are like Civil War era. And rings. Um, I always love the rings. Yeah. 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 But it was about souvenirs and it was about like, okay, well, you know, even if you're abandoning a certain aesthetic, you know, you keep the fedora, you keep the necklace. It's mm-hmm. like, and it all mixes and matches to the point that you can't identify one particular time period or place. Right. Right. Which makes it feel bohemian and current. Mm -hmm. And um, because so many 
fashion trends today have all collided into mm -hmm. this kind of new reclaimed hybrid fashion. Um, so it was, a, it was a very weird little blender we threw each of them in. I'm going to point and, out real and quick actor, too, um, when we were watching last night, uh, when Rose was shopping, uh, my wife said, <laughs> oh, oh, they poop. Because she had toilet paper in the in, in, in the cart, <laughs> which I yes. thought was a very strange observation. <laughs> did, did you see some of the other things that she put in? So Rebecca no. picked everything. Like yeah. typically, props will go through and, and build that for an actor. That doesn't Rebecca surprise Ferguson, me. She's awesome. She's so great. I, I I loved working with her so much. But we, uh, she and I, ran through the supermarket with a shopping cart when we got to set. Um, and she wrote out the list, the little shopping list that she's referencing, which if you freeze frame is hilarious, but there's toilet paper, there are condoms in there, um, maxi pads, like she really was, and she had a story for all of it and like explained to me why grandpa Flick needed the boiled peanuts, um, and why like Robert Longstreet's character is the one who asked for the Bud Light and it's like... Uh, why she thought that was perfect for him right. as this quasi-immortal character who subsists on the misery of, of gifted children so, and, and Bud Light. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's their slogan, actually. It's, yeah. it, it <laughs> yeah. goes the well next, with... Uh, the next Bud Light commercial is going to be the Tremblay scene in full. <laughs> that's going to be Bud, by Bud Light. <laughs> it would make a lot of sense. <laughs> um. Like, I want to talk about uh, the geography of the Overlook Hotel, which is something that I feel like Kubrick really didn't give two shits about because, like, there is an overview. Like, I got my little snow globe. There's an, clearly, like, an overview shot that, that shows that there is no hedge maze. They don't really establish where the front door is. A lot of the hallways don't make a ton of sense if you really think about where they're turning and where they're going. So in your sense, did that make it more difficult for you? Or did you just sort of say like, well, if Kubrick doesn't give a shit, why should I? It, it, a little of both. At first, it was maddening. Um, at, at first, because, you know, the, Warner's gave us all his plans as well, his, his stage plans. And, and we we're like, oh, we're going to re we're going to rebuild the sets like to the millimeter of what he did. And then we realized that the film didn't match the plans. Mm. Um, and that on numerous occasions, he clearly was like, oh. Never mind. We're just going to do this instead, and would make a change that wasn't reflected in the blueprints anymore. But we spent weeks in prep trying to figure out where the door was, like mm. where the lobby entrance of the hotel was from that overhead shot. Mm -hmm. We never cracked it. Oh, we wow. ended up got get, we got rid of the scene in the lobby where it came in because we we were so like we didn't want to be wrong, um, mm. and we kept going back and forth and being like, but Scatman Crothers comes walking into the lobby, and it's like, but not through the front door. Yeah. He comes at it from a whole different angle. Um, so we would bump into these problems. And for the longest time, I thought maybe there was some kind of hidden code to all of it and that he was burying these different layers of meaning. But time and again, we would bump into things where it was like, well, actually, given the, given the requirements of, of keeping an active fire lane on a, on a standard um, uh, sound stage. Yeah, you probably want to cut a corner here and move it around this way. And, and it started to seem the mystique came off of it a little bit. Um, and it started to seem like he just didn't mind <laughs> if, if it didn't make sense. And because I think, to him at the time, he's just making a movie. He's not making a movie that he thinks is going to get overanalyzed for decades, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And making a movie, you know, on like where he's repurposing parts of the stages in London where he's, he's building into the set. Mm. Like the little, uh, we went back and forth about the steps. When you go into the residence, there are these steps you walk up um, into the Torrance apartment. But when you're outside and you look in, it doesn't make sense why they would, any of them would be there. Um, not to mention the fact that then it means the bathroom window's the wrong height and it opens into the hallway anyway. <laughs> Uh, which is the the other thing we learned. Like the Were you just sitting there going like, damn, you Kubrick? <laughs> a, a lot, yes. <laughs> and, and, um, and we would say, you know, well, clearly he he's either playing one of the longest cons, you know, with no guarantee that anyone's ever going to try to put this back together. Um, or really he was making a movie and didn't mind that the hotel didn't make logical sense because it thematically worked to help yeah. you feel lost and disoriented. And I'm, sh- I'm certain that was an intentional element of his, his approach. Mm-hmm. But there were definitely times where it was like, well, they, they clearly cut this off because that was the limitation of the stage. Or um, he didn't seem to mind that he established that the hallway you know, uh, that leads to the Torrance apartment clearly forced the, the bathroom to open up into that same hallway. Yeah. Um, and it was freeing in a way because I, I tend to, to suffer a continuity. And so my, you know, Kimmy, my DP and I would, would look at each other and just finally be like, how cool is it to say like, fuck it. Um, <laughs> and we've yeah. been able to carry that into other stuff too, where it's just like, you know, maybe this can reshape how we approach everything. Yeah. Um, and either just be like, well, we're going to go for what looks the best for this shot. And maybe somebody someday will will assign some incredible value, you know, to this decision. <laughs> there could that be a documentary made. about it. I'm glad <laughs> yeah. that you cared about uh, location when you did your one shot in Hill House, because if you had yeah. just said "fuck it" in the middle yeah. of that, yeah, yeah, I'd have been really disappointed. <laughs> so was like, wasn't yeah. the casket over there? Nah, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> they're not going to care. This is about being crazy, anyway. <laughs> like, um, it was really. And there were times too, even when we were recreating certain shots where, you know, we, we did just for a flash, we, we did Jack backing Wendy up the stairs with the bat. And, and then it occurred to us that in each of their shots, they're like dead center on the staircase, which mm-hmm. continuity wise, I never would have ever been willing to approach that level of a cheat, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But he did it. So we were like, well, we're just going to do what he did. And, <laughs> and lo and behold, nobody cared. Like no one, no one kicks at it when, when it's the shining, it, it yeah. casts such a spell on you. You don't, you don't question it. Um, but people will play that bit in the untouchables where Connery's tie goes up and down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They'll play it ad nauseum and, and laugh at it. And it's just like oh, the shining, you know, that would have been nothing yeah. like compared to what he was, he was willing to like. Well, also I think Kubrick said to his team, like no one's going to be crazy enough to try to do a sequel to this movie. So let's, you just cut the rules out. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, for sure. We we uh, there were a couple of things we we really like thought we were going to step outside the box and like, what if we're the first people that show you walk into the lobby from outside? Wouldn't that be awesome? And we completely buckled and hmm. and chickened out because we knew like the minute we we established that geography, somebody online would catch the thing we'd missed. And they'd call us to, uh, you know, call it all into question and we'd be embarrassed. Mm. So we, we chickened out as many times as we persisted in that. Mm. Mike, I, uh, 
I rewatched the I watched the director's cut last night. It was the first time I had seen it since the theatrical release. I love both versions. I think the director's cut is just a better film in general. I think they're both amazing. I gave them they're both they would both be five out of fives in my book because they're truly some of the it's just some of the scariest visual elements I've ever seen put to screen. Um, and I think oh, a man. lot of the what, what makes your movie scary is your editing. Um, and I the just there's this razor sharp edits that you do like specifically in the beginning when the little girl walks up to Rebecca Ferguson and those quick edits those shots to the people in the forest the way you I mean Kubrick did those quick little flashes too I was wanting to talk to you about your editing choices because those are choices you're making in post not on the day and you know you have to somehow think they're going to work at the same time I also feel like you use a lot of long dissolves and I love the long dissolves and I was just interested from your perspective as a storyteller what you want to get across to the audience. One of my favorite ones is when Ewan's driving in a night shot and then you slowly dissolve to him this epic shot looking up at him uh, putting gas in his car. And I just find those to be such an effective tool. And I'm wondering, do you want those shots to remain in our memory and kind of fade with it? Like, what, what, is, what is the choice of that as a, as a director? And then also just those quick cuts that you do with that almost feel like you're getting stabbed. It's so, so sharp how you do it. Oh, um, well, I love talking about editing. That, that's, my, that's my whole trick, really. Um, I came up as, as an editor, um, and that was how I made my living, and mostly reality television um, oh, for no a lot of years. Yeah, well I, well, I tried desperately to pedal specs and kind of get movies going. Um, I cut a lot of reality TV. Mm. Um, I learned so much about storytelling and audience manipulation, because reality TV in particular, is nothing but audience manipulation. Sometimes yeah. you're relying on the editor to create the whole story mm. out of nothing. Um, My girlfriend watches so, The Bachelor. I understand that. <laughs> so she says like, oh, this is like, this person's the villain. I was like, what do you mean this person's the oh, villain? She's like, no, you can tell. Yeah, you, no, I, I, I watch The Bachelor too. And, um, yeah. and uh, you can totally tell once you learn the tools, you can see when they're teeing someone up to be the villain. Or like, if you yeah. want to know who the three people are that, that are going to be waiting for that rose at the end of the episode that you're going to be cross cutting between. Yeah. They'll tell you that in the beginning of the episode and the mm -hmm. way, the, the way they cut it. Um, so I, I studied editing, you know, uh, up through school and then, and then to make a living afterward. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the, the quick cuts that you talk about that are meant to be stabs, you know, yeah. I'll just go back to psycho and, and, you know, how to turn the camera into a weapon. Mm. Um, that's an incredible lesson. Uh, I tend to come from an old school with editing because I, I learned how to cut using flatbeds and mm. to cut on film. Um, so I had to sit there and really sweat over every single edit I'd make and try to visualize it as completely as I could because I'd have to physically cut the film. Hmm. Um, and I have to hang each little daily, you know, up around me and you wear the gloves and you, you agonize over it to make sure you mm. get it right. Whereas I think a lot of contemporary editors come up on nonlinear um, software, they can just uh, control Z their way out of it. Mm -hmm. They don't have to visualize it. <laughs> and, and that, I think, leads to overcutting. Um, it, it leads to people putting in more edits than a scene requires. Mm. Um, and that's that kind of, you know, it comes from music videos and short form and, and the power to just cut the hell out of something, you know, on a timeline without having to really think about it. Um, and so uh, in this case, you know, that language is, is the one I'm the most comfortable with. 
in, mm. in, in making movies. It, it's, it's made me a better writer. My entire directorial approach is about serving the edit. I never shoot mm. for coverage. Um, it's about shot sequencing. I, I do a paper cut. The edits are written into my shot list. Wow. You know how long a shot lives. I can say to an actor, oh, no, I'm, I'm never going to be on this shot for this moment. I'm going to be on the wide or I'm going to be on the steady cam." That feeds me into this. Um, so it lets me be very specific. It lets me move very quickly. This movie was really fun for me because we were directly quoting The Shining. I got to dig into a bunch of tools that have fallen out of vogue yeah. over the years. It felt old school. It really did. I, 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 wanted to say, I wanted to say that, but I didn't want to like offend you. I, it just felt like oh, old no. school filmmaking. Yeah, that's how it felt to me. That doesn't offend me one bit. That yeah, warms okay. my heart. Yeah. That makes my day. Uh, it, it is old school, you know, down to down to the lenses that we chose, the way the shots were designed, and when we'd employ something like a long dissolve. Which love is, those. Uh, yeah, I love them too. They're they're definitively not modern tools. Mm. Um, and a dissolve is meant, you know, uh, meant to create the experience of passage of time. Um, meant to have you simultaneously exist in two scenes at one time. Mm. Um, it makes you more omniscient. Uh, it pulls you out of the kind of A to B to C to D um, yeah. domino effect of a scene and instead lets you marinate in it and soak in it. Um, and back, back in the day, you know, they weren't afraid to linger on shots for a really long time or stretch out a dissolve for a long time to let the two juxtaposed images actually um, work from a composition level together, let the the two of them kind of flow into each other and create um, create something that's graphically interesting when you combine them, which is always a really fun challenge. Uh, you know, that was absolutely a tool that Stanley Kubrick used beautifully. Um, that I think has just fallen. It's it's like a split diopter. It's just fallen out of the bag. You know, yeah. um, beautiful storytelling tool that just feels old. Blowout. Blowout, yeah. yeah. Did you see so, Jordan uh, Peele's split diopter in in, uh, in Us when she was at the chalkboard? Oh my God, yeah. mm-hmm. Awesome, beautifully shot. used. Yeah, and what, well, I, I do a little fist pump whenever I see a, a split diopter in general, just because I feel like they've fallen so far out of vogue. Whenever someone dusts one off, I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, and we were, you know, uh, we we were playing with them on on Ouija Origin of Evil at the time because we were also going for that old school aesthetic and like the antique lenses and everything else. Uh, but in this one, it was really, really rewarding because um, it's such a deliberate and kind of literary story. Mm-hmm. It really takes its time. And I could always point to The Shining, which took its time even more mm-hmm. than we were. You know, we're, we're pace-wise. I mean, we're, we're a roller coaster ride compared to The Shining. <laughs> it would just, it would hold you in a shot until you're so uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, by the lack of, of the relief of an edit, like he would just, he used it to strangle you. And it's so brilliant. Modern audiences, you, it's hard to get away with that. And I got to push it a lot further than I ever would have otherwise because I got mm. the point to the shining. That's but, awesome. um, but yeah, so I, I'm thrilled that you, that you uh, responded um, both to the, you know, you, you pick when to be frenetic and when to let, let the edit or the camera itself be a weapon that you can wield against a viewer. Um, but also, when you talk about atmosphere, you know, Kubrick taught me the irreplaceable impact that having an unbroken long shot with a um, oppressive and syrupy sound design, like with that heartbeat or with that drone, um, 
how you start to feel like you're in a dream and how you cease to view what you're seeing as an objective reality. Everything feels warped and distorted and like it's creeping in. Um, that's, that's some of the lessons I learned from The Shining. And it was a real treat to be able to kind of to, to spitball them into this. Um, Man, that one on Danny on the bike in the beginning. Oh my God. I would, I would love to have seen you shoot that. Cause I was like, how the hell is he pulling this off? It was such a great shot. It's a shame yeah. that this was such a paycheck gig for you, Mike, you know, that you just uh, <laughs> took it in between projects. Yeah. <laughs> Your passion doesn't shine through in the least bit. Uh, I'm going to give a really quick compliment to, uh, because we watched the director's cut last night. Um, and my wife is a teacher, so she's up at uh, earliest hours and is asleep by nine. We started it at eight and she was riveted till the very end, um, was just could not look away, totally fascinated, casual shining fan, you know, and was just so compelled by by the story, too. So uh, that that I, that is a huge compliment if you would understand how quickly mm -hmm. she's looking forward to going to bed. Um, but there's oh, thank her for me. Thank <laughs> there's her. something that. That I caught last night that I didn't pick up the first time through in the theatrical is um, your lead protagonist. Uh, well, well, I guess it would be Danny, but I'm not. You could make an argument that it could be Abra or it could be. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But I'm talking about Danny in particular. Um, he is he's a listener uh, throughout the the course of the film, and he is absorbing a lot of what's going on around him. And he has dialogue, but he doesn't have long passages of dialogue. And it wasn't until we got to the scene where he sits across from his father at the bar that he gets that incredible monologue. And I wanted mm. to know if it was a calculated decision to not have him say a whole heck of a lot until he got to that moment, because then he, then you and McGregor finally got to do all the you and McGregor things <laughs> that we love seeing him do. And I was like, damn, I didn't even realize that I wasn't getting the full you until we got to this scene. And it's so heartbreaking what he's delivering. And so I just want to yeah. hear your approach to that. No, sure. Well, first, I think, you know, and Ewan would agree that we need the shirt that says the full Ewan and uh, we can <laughs> try to figure out what the graphic will be. <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, that absolutely. Um, Dan is a character that, as King conceived him, I think, as well, um, who has had an arrested development in kind of every state, in every sense of it he never really was able to move on past his own childhood and everything about him is about suppression. It's, mm. it's about burying not only the shining, but anything about himself that's going to call, uh, that's going to, that's going to catch someone's attention. It's like the, the most pure you ever see Danny Torrance is when he's hiding in the shine mm. and he can't make a noise and he can't be seen. Mm -hmm. Um, and to the point that he's walking in his own footsteps at the end, he doesn't want to create any forward, moving footprints wow, like this is gosh. a human being yeah like he doesn't want to leave a single mm -hmm. impact uh, any kind of ripple on the world anymore wow and and our thought was that he's remained that way through his adulthood um he tries to leave everything that he encounters undisturbed by his presence hmm. um and that's a protective mechanism and one of despair and and weakness and and everything else um so, so yeah, uh, the thing about the bar scene was, you know, that was really the reason I wanted to make the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and in the way that The Shining is about alcoholism, I think Dr. Sleep is about sobriety yeah. yep. and the struggles there. And, and um, that scene to me was always kind of, because it, is, it, isn't, it isn't from either book um, and it isn't from the Kubrick film. So to me, the scene with, with Jack and Dan at the bar 
is the one, the one thing really, the most important thing um, that wasn't beholden to any of the stuff that came before mm-hmm. and felt like the scene as a fan that I wanted to see. So whenever I got intimidated by the Kubrick stuff or, or by the King side, I always had that scene to hold on to. It's like, did you write it there. early on? Did you write it early on? Very early. Yeah. Um, before, uh, before I sat to write the draft, I had written that scene. No kidding. Oh, that's kind of yeah. cool. Um, and that was my big pitch to, to King was, you know, this is what they're going to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, so, th- so that was of critical importance to me. It was one of the scenes that really grabbed Ewan McGregor when he read the script and he said, you know, the shine, he hadn't, he's not a horror fan. Right. And so the shining, he respected it, but he hadn't seen it until very recently mm-hmm. ever. And, and he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. Brilliant. Shining. Great. Um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about AA and I want to talk about Dan, you know, who's eight years sober. Uh, mm-hmm. Ewan at the time was eight years sober. Oh, okay. And so oh, for wow. him, that's what it was all about. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that he would keep that kind of fist clenched around himself until that moment and then finally have the reckoning and kind of let himself out there. And that would propel him into the final events of, of the story. That, that's, that seemed really right. And, and the only other scene that he and I talked about where he felt like we really saw Dan um, was when he accepts his eight-year chip. So even that. It's the most words he says in a row until right. you get to right. uh, the bar. Um, and even that, you know, Dan only really comes out when we're dealing directly with sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Everything else he, he pulls right in, but there he, he would, he would kind of step out from behind himself. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, definitely that was a, that was, that was the intention. It was always, it was, it was such a, a tragic kind of fight um, internally, uh, because it was simultaneously the most important scene of the movie for me from a character and, and theme perspective and the scene that was guaranteed to be the most controversial with fans hmm. because of Jack. Well, well let's, uh, yeah, let's I would argue that, <laughs> yeah, I would argue that you, you handled that scene beautifully. And um, I, I do want to jump back to one of my earlier questions, but I do want to tell you that the way you framed that scene is the reason why it works is because you're from the side. We don't see his face until after the conversation, but you also set up earlier on that the, that Danny and the mom are being played by different actors in general. So you're, it's already, it's already being set. It's already set up. I mean, I, I didn't find that to be controversial at all, but we do want to get to that, but I want to go back to Tremblay for one second, only because uh, this scene is, Deeply disturbing, obviously, and and, <laughs> and, uh, and we and we I've heard uh, we read a story today about I know Stephen King told you to dial some of that back a little bit. Um, uh, so I guess there's two part question: Is the director's cut the the original scene you showed him before you dialed it back? No, it was more violent. Uh, so so the uh, the director's <laughs> cut has um, it's interesting because you talk about the difference between the frontal and the profile in yeah. the bar. That was all the difference in the Jacob Tremblay scene. Oh, okay. all of it. Um, and and so uh, the the theatrical cut on all of his close-ups, we're in profile. Okay. Um, and the idea was that if you're not directly in his line of vision, that it would be somehow less upsetting. Yeah, it's not. In the original it's cut, not. it's not. I know, it, it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> in the original cut, we were always in this frontal locked, dead-on close-up. And in the version that Steve saw, there were two more stabs. Okay. 
one of which sprayed his face with blood because and the spray when, is in the, in the director's cut i saw the spray last yeah night. yeah um oh so then i guess that is yeah then that would be the version he saw i thought okay. we'd kept that out okay. oh no but if, 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 if he got sprayed <laughs> in the face that's the that's what steve saw where he was like ooh. Oh um, Mike, there's sprayage, man. Yeah. There, I mean, it, it was it, it was brutal. <laughs> now, so this is a guy so my, who oh, ripped Georgie's arm off. Is is yeah. what I want to argue. You know, here's this is <laughs> the thing. We were really the the whole evolution of this scene has been fascinating to me because yes, this is the guy that killed kids all over the place. Gage, you know, not Gage just Georgie, and yeah, Pet Cemetery. Gage and, Creed, yeah, yeah. Um, like and and. My whole thing initially was I was like, oh, we're going to be, this isn't going to be a thing because we're just not going to show anything. Yeah. Like, you're never going to see little, little, um, you're not going to see his little arm ripped off. You're not going to yeah. see little dead gauge with the, the autopsy scars. Like, we're not going to do any of that. Right. We're just going to be here and you're going to hear it, which is worse anyway. That's why the movie seven is so effective because the yes. violence is all off camera and you have to imagine how those people died. It's like, it's way worse that way almost. And so we knew that intellectually, like prior to making this, you could have cornered me and said like, what's worse, the implied violence or, or explicit? And I would have said, oh, implied's always worse than the imagination. Yet we still foolishly thought uh, that that wouldn't be the case here. Um, and that, you know, the book it, it kind of tiptoes around what happens right. to him. Um, the book writes around it and, uh, and I thought that the movie would do the same. The thing no one was prepared for was Jacob. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should have been like the, you know, I, I'd done a movie with, with Jacob when uh, early in his career, when he was like seven years old. And even then thought he was the best young actor I'd ever worked with. Mm-hmm. And so when, when, when we called him and said, Hey, you want to, you want to play this part? Um, and he was real excited about it. And, and uh, he was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I have a great idea. Like, this is gonna be really scary. And we are like, okay, sure. And we all showed up full of swagger. And it was like, yeah, you know, we're gonna, we're just gonna roll. We're just gonna, we're gonna have somebody down there flicking the blood because we want a little bit of splash on his chin. Not, not what you guys saw. That was a little, yeah. little more than we thought <laughs> would happen. Um, but- uh, You dumped the entire elevator blood on Tremblay from The Shining. <laughs> Sissy Spacek at the prom. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? <laughs> well, um, and, and Rebecca, who's pretty fearless, you know, was full of attitude. And when she met Jacob, who had been doing another movie, so we never rehearsed with him, you know, like he, I would talk to his father and he's like, we're rehearsing ourselves. And it's really, it's really good. What? It's really good. It's really upsetting. Yourselves? What? what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. You're rehearsing that scene no, yourselves they, at home? <laughs> well, it's a very typical thing with, uh, <laughs> with child actors that, you know, their parents will run a scene with them. A bunch, in fact, hmm. before they ever get to set. It actually makes my job a lot easier when their parents are, are as good at it as, as Jacob Tremblay's are. Um, but I knew they were working on the scene. They weren't worried about it. Jacob was really confident about it. He showed up and is, he's the sweetest, most charming kid you'll ever meet anyway. And Rebecca was even, oh, get ready, Jacob. We're going to mess you up. Like, oh, true not. We're coming to get him. <laughs> and they walked up. They were all, like that whole group of actors was, they're the, they're the bad guys. They get to strut around set in cool costumes and say cool stuff. Yeah. And so they showed up to it just cocky. And we started with Jacob. We, when we rehearsed, we didn't put any emotion into it. I was like, Jacob, don't scream. Don't we're just going to walk through it me- mechanically. 
so you don't get traumatized, you know, and we'll, we'll and save were you, it. Were you planning on, sh- on multiple, sh- multiple takes or did you want to try to get it in, in as few as you could? Oh yeah. Well, uh, a few as we could. Cause I, but that was about his vocal cords. Okay. I knew he was going to scream. I just didn't want to blow his voice out. I yeah, didn't, yeah, yeah. you know, he wasn't scared of anything. Um, the thing was we, we, uh, we were starting on him though. We started on his frontal and his profile, which were running simultaneously. And um, he's like, nope, I got this. And I was like, do you want to do a dry, do you want to do anything with it? And he said, nope, I'm good. And we all went to the monitor and they, you know, Rebecca gets all into character and everybody's ready. And, um, and his dad leans over to me and he's like, you have no idea what you're in for. It kind of smirking. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, like we know this is going to be a disturbing scene. It's going to be fine, though. It's going to be you know. It's but always dad's worse. Dad's on than board. Dad's oh, on he was, board. Oh yeah, he was. Watch well, how he, my son can die. Yeah, well, he's he's just smirking, and and you know he knows what's coming. We don't know, and and the the general idea was like this stuff's always worse in the movie than it is on the set. Like on yeah. the set, the stuff tends to be fun and silly. Sure, sure. Um, and so we roll. And Jacob just lets loose. And it's what you see in the movie. Um, and he's just screaming and begging and he's ad-libbing, you know? And he's just throwing in pleas and Rebecca can't get her lines out. Oh. He's just screaming over her and he's crying. Oh. And Rebecca comes in and she's like, uh, uh, yeah, this, this is, this is going to hurt because fear purifies steam. And then she starts crying. Oh. Right. Um, oh my God. Says, ah, you know, and we're in the, in the, uh, we were in a <laughs> van at the time. We had all the, all the monitors in this ride van on the, on the location. We're all in there just staring at it, horrified. Oh my God. We get through to the end of the take. I, I'm like too shocked to call cut. He's just dead. Like he just, <laughs> he dies. <laughs> and we're all just staring at it. And I looked over to Trevor Macy and I was like, what have we done? <laughs> cut! Oh, yes, cut! And I, 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 I go out, and Jacob's dad is just grinning, right? <laughs> so, so Jacob hops up off the ground, just pop, blood all over him, and um, half the crew is gone, like they have abandoned their posts. So during the shot, oh grips God. and electricians and stuff were like, nope. And they just walked away. Um, <laughs> that was Sean's wife last night when they watched the movie. She said, yeah, nope, we're fast forwarding wife, through this. My wife had to say, she, she, she had a blanket on, and when it was getting up to it, getting up to it, she goes, I, I don't think I can watch this. And we did. We, we kind of skipped through it. And I'll tell no, you what I, happened. I don't blame you. This is how long it goes. We're skipping through, skipping through, and I'm like, okay, I think we're okay. And we click it on, and it's still going. It's still okay, going. Yeah. The scene is longer than Gone with the Wind. It is <laughs> long. That, that scene feels like, but I guess um, I wanted to ask you, this is the question I really wanted to get from you. That scene deeply disturbed me beyond belief that I could ever, I, I felt every stab of that scene because of the way you did it. What is the scene that did that to you, that disturbed you that much? Ooh. Um... Damn. Uh, you know, the first time I saw Martyrs, I had, a, I had an almost impossible time getting through it. Um, mm. Multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time I saw... Or yeah, and you're asking for other movies, yeah. right? Just yeah. A, a scene yeah. like that, um, that just, just like messed that just, you up. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh my God, yeah. Uh, so the first, maybe the first one in my life that messed me up that much um, was little Alex Kittner and Jaws. Oh God! Um, yeah. The way the the way it rolls over, like right on the bite, yep. um, which I've never really, as I've gotten older, been able to figure out what's happening. 
there, but I, I that that one upset me profoundly as a kid. Right. Uh, and then another scene that I could never get past, although they pulled the ripcord, that didn't happen. Um, but I was very young when I saw Killer Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> okay. And mm. there's a part in that movie where a little girl's like in a, I think it's she's in a diner or something. And she looks over the window and there's this clown waving and kind of enticing her over in the, in the window. And she kind of walks over and it, it pulls back to show that he's holding this giant mallet behind him. Um, and I imagined that he was going to crush this child. Oh. Um, and she gets rescued at the last minute from that. But that scene messed me up as a kid. I remember I wouldn't watch that movie for years because oh I just couldn't, I couldn't process that. Yeah. Well, Mike, I will tell you, your your all that blood splatter and spray is right on HBO Max right now in the director's cut. <laughs> that, that version is on there. Um, I want to ask real quick about Tremblay, too, just for this reason. Um, you know, he gets cast and they say, well, they're not going to cast Jacob Tremblay unless it's a big role. And for a, a while, the rumor was that he's going to play young Danny in flashbacks. Yeah. Right. And I'm curious because you've said in interviews that you love to read reviews and you can't really stop yourself from reading about production. So when you read reviews like that, how hard is it for you to step in and just be like, you know, just to weigh in in some way, shape or form and, and wait for the movie to come out and answer the questions. That is hard. actually. Yeah. And, and, and then that, that one in particular, a couple people were like, was clearly playing Danny. And I'm like, no, no, no. But I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not supposed to work against the movie yeah. uh, until it's out anyway. And, and, um, but yeah, that stuff is tough for me. Not, not piping up. And that one in particular was tricky because you know, Jacob's really in incredible demand. We, I don't think, would have had uh, time. And he's too old to play Danny um, yeah. in the flashbacks. But uh, we would, he didn't have the time. He only had a couple of days to give us anyway. He was off doing all sorts of stuff. Right. And and so he did it because he, loved, he loves The Shining. <laughs> uh, Jacob loves The Shining. And, um, and we, we had, we then, uh, like. He's an old soul, Jacob Tremblay. <laughs> No, he really is. He is. He's like a 40-year-old. Like, yeah, um, Jacob was was like one of the most professional people on the Before I Wake set, and I'm including myself in, in the other camp. Like that was my second movie, and I was trying to figure it all out, and Jacob just had it down. Like yeah. he's just he's he's always been that way. But um, but yeah, uh he was like, no, nah, this is real exciting. This is fun. I'd love to be part of the movie. Um, it'd be great to see you guys again. Cause like I, I work with the same crew all the time. And, mm-hmm. and so if he remembered them very fondly from the other movie too, and so like, I'd love to see everybody and come hang out. Um, that's awesome. But I was terrified they were going to leak it. Uh, mm. and I think they did actually, if I remember oh, right, really? TMZ had it. Yeah. Um, and that stuff always, for us, it was going to be like, no one's going to think we're going to kill him if they see Jacob Tremblay. Right. Like, if if they see him pop up, the most recognizable child actor in the world, they're going to be like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. He's in this. And then when we kill him, people are going to be like, what? Uh, and so, um, you don't kill him, Mike. You, it, It's worse than killing him. It's like, it's yeah, worse. Really, it's, it's, it's the Drew Barrymore scream effect. Like yeah. You see Drew yeah, Barrymore. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah. she's going to be in this whole movie. <laughs> Not so much. Better, I still feel bad. And um, I... It was the, we did maybe a hundred versions of that sequence over the course of post. No, no scene changed more than that one. Um, and you'll see the artifacts all over. You never hear him full voice once the first stab happens. All the audio is pulled back like he's underwater and it's like drenched in reverb and stylized. And you can hear the true not breathing 
way louder than you can hear him screaming. Like we, we did all sorts of things to try to like get away from it. Um, without, there was a certain point we always knew was there where if we backed off too far, uh, the scene, its importance in the movie would no longer be there. And that without it, we didn't have the engine that launched Abra and Dan into the rest of the story and that illustrated the stakes for her. Like what what a pop song, a pop song over the top of it. Just something light (laughs) (laughs) Um, for the soundtrack. Ace of bass, you know, something, you know, just just drop it in there. (laughs) We, uh, we, and I'm not kidding about this. Uh, While we were editing it, because you can hear, we're we're at Warner Brothers in post and you can hear through the walls really clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Chris Nolan's like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, there there are other, there are other movies like Annabelle comes home as editing next door. And like they, you know, there was this two and a half day period where we did the first assembly of that, or I'm going through the raw footage and trying to find everything. And it's just screams. And uh, so we had, we had, dragged all the audio down and I would put stuff like walking on sunshine on really loud. Um, Like not only to drown out the screams for the other offices, but because after about, after a few hours of going through the footage of this, like I wanted to die, you know, just in the edit. Um, like, like you guys, you know, the viewer gets to endure that scene for, uh, I think all in inclusive of the Abra bit in the middle of it, you know, the yeah. whole thing's four, four and a half minutes or something. And like then the that. dig up later is even, is terrible too. The dig up. Yeah. Well, that's, that was a benefit. Yeah. yeah. That was, um, that's fake up Tremblay is what we called him. That was a little funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, wait, really? We, mm-hmm. we are a pun driven show. So thank you for that. That's that's amazing. Amazing. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. That was a little, little fake up. Um, you know, Jacob had had his, his head, uh, life cast when he did wonder. Um, <laughs> Oh, and wow. uh, so we got our, our hands on that to make this dummy. Um, so that's his his life cast from that movie uh, put on this little statue that was all gutted and it was horrible. And yeah, little fake up we kept in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> we never wanted Jacob to see him because uh, they were on set on the same day. And like Jacob cannot see fake up. Jacob um, uh, <laughs> also have a, a grinning father uh, grinning, uh, off yeah that, that was Bob Kurtzman yes uh, like he was the one smirking uh, whenever Jacob was around and he made it like the whole like chest cavity was open and it was really it was like a like a turkey carcass after Thanksgiving. It was so, <laughs> it was so like it was way more Jeez. than we were I was like I said to him, I was like, this thing's buried. Like, I'm going to see, like, the edge of his nose. Like, <laughs> I, this, none of this was necessary. And Bob was like, wow, it's pretty cool, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, so Fake Up was just hanging out, you know, by the craft service table. <laughs> and when Jacob hopped up, and his dad kind of smirked at him. And they, 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 I'll never forget it. He hopped up walked past his dad and they high-fived. Oh, that's like his weird. dad just put his hands up, high-fived, that's and Jacob weird. walked over to Crafty to eat candy while we were all like crying and <laughs> fucked up. Um, <laughs> 
And it was uh, we shot that scene on his twelfth birthday, so we brought out a birthday cake <laughs> after. <laughs> this is all true. Yeah. You, you, oh keep my adding, God. you keep adding stuff that makes this way more unbelievable. I know this <laughs> is all true, though. I swear to God. So it's so it's his twelfth birthday. <laughs> Jake, they shot the scene on his twelfth birthday. Yeah. It um, was his twelfth birthday when they shot the scene. <laughs> we had a cake that was made in the shape of the baseball jersey with the number 19 and it was red velvet cake. So when you cut it up, it was red inside. Um, and oh, we brought that out and sang bastards. I know well, it was, that was, it was before we saw what he was going to do. And we were all feeling really just like, <laughs> yeah, it's just another day. Like, yeah, yeah. Killing trembling. About it. Yeah. <laughs> but then we saw what he did and we all felt like awful. And, and um, but we brought it out. We had cake, we sang, he's covered with blood. There's various pictures of him just like yeah. with his cake in the blood. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then he left. He said good night. You know that was so fun, everybody. Bye. And um, and he left. And the cast recovered. And then we wheeled little fake about, and buried him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then Ewan and, and Cliff Curtis had been. You know they they had a later call because we had to do the death scene. Yeah. So they weren't there for any of that. And so Ewan and, and Cliff show up. They're ready to, to dig a hole. They're just like, hey, what did we miss? How was it? We're all like still shaking. And, um, <laughs> and like Rebecca Ferguson just doesn't want to talk about it. And he was like, I don't know. With the she quits acting. Like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, um, she quits acting. She quits. <laughs> but, uh, and she did all of her stuff. Uh, like all the shots of her when she talks to him and when he's like, is this going to hurt? She's like, yes. And like all the roaring, like in his face stuff, he was gone. Right. Like oh, we, wow. we did that after Jacob left set. She, she couldn't look him in the eye and do that. So. Well, and um, I love, yeah. I love your reaction when, when King says, you know, we listened to the King cast and, and King said to you like, Hey, that's, that's intense. That's too much. And your <laughs> response was you wrote it. <laughs> you yeah. <know>? It was, <laughs> I thought we were being like super restrained. I thought it was, wor- it was worse in the book. Mm. Um, and it, it's not, but, yeah. uh, but I thought so at the time. It's definitely not. And, and, um, but it was really funny when he was like, that's a little brutal, isn't it? And I was like, dear Stephen King, you did it. <laughs> I didn't kill the kid. You killed the kid. Right, you, know, like, right, you, killed, right. you killed that kid and so many other kids. You know, uh, and, um, <laughs> uh, but it was the thing where immediately I, I, been back and forth on the cut and I'd done shorter ones and longer ones. And we were always negotiating it with the studio. And it was like some executives were parents and others weren't. And I am, and other people aren't. And it was like this whole thing. And Steve was like, yeah, it's a little, little brutal. It was like, it's gone. Don't worry. It's gone. And it's like, you got to get on the phone to post. It's like, cut, cut the close-ups right now. Cut the close-ups. And, um, and they did. But, um, Mike, we are um, at the time to stop, but we got a couple more questions. Do you mind if we go sure. a little longer? No, not at all. Yeah, okay. the, oh, yeah we have so okay. much to talk to you. Yeah, um, Jake, Jake, go ahead. Jake, yeah, go ahead. it's your turn, buddy. Yeah, I, I, uh, no, 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 your, your name is fake now. No, no longer Jake. <laughs> Jake, yes. Jake, Jake Hamilton. Yeah. Hamilton. So if you if you want to kill me in the next season uh, of Haunting, I'm I'm in it. You can call me. You can call me Fake Hamilton. I'm good. <laughs> okay, that would be fun, actually. Uh, so um, basically, what I want to start out. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is my break. I got it. Um, so I want to talk about uh, basically Jack Nicholson, um, because I think coming into this movie, you know, we were all sort of curious about how you were going to handle, because even though it's, it's a different scene, you know, uh, Torrance is, Jack Torrance is 
uh, in the book. And so we were curious how you were going to handle that. I love that you bring in Henry Thomas. I think Henry Thomas does a great job. I was just sort of curious if um, there was ever a thought to do any kind of a, a digital Jack Nicholson. Uh, what reaction you've heard from Jack Nicholson. And if you've seen, there is a deep fake on YouTube where someone takes that scene and puts Nicholson's face over it. I was curious if you've seen that. Um, so, uh, so we definitely, we, um, and I'm having some audio issues. Is, is that on my side or is that on your guys? No, side? It's on Jake's side. Yeah, it's okay. You, no, you're, it's you're, no, I, I, I got the question. Yeah, yeah. I, I got it. I just oh, want to make sure you're, so yeah, we, we talked about every, every option. Um, and we started with, you know, uh, with Nicholson himself, we talked about de-aging, which at the time, um, I was really skeptical of the technology. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it done really well. And, and I was afraid of, the idea was that no matter what, we're going to rip people out of the movie right there. Like a good amount of the people are going to be bumped off of, off of the trajectory of just following the film. Um, and so we had, you know, we had a couple things to, to weigh in. One was whatever we did to Jack, I felt like we had to do uh, to Dick Halloran and to Wendy and to Danny. Um, and so that just explodes into turning the movie into something of a video game at a certain point. You know, then, then we're talking about four distinct avatars walking around and we're crafting a performance that that actor didn't give, which, which to me raises ethical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first approach. You know, the second approach to it was that the rules of kind of a ghost at the overlook as Kubrick established um, and, and the way they are in the, in the novel as well seemed to preclude um, a performance by Nicholson that wasn't digitally altered um, just given the amount of time that's gone by between the films and the mm-hmm. fact that none of the other ghosts seem to age. Um, although we had, did have an interesting chat about Mrs. Massey in that respect that we could never mm-hmm. come up with a good answer for. Um, but uh, then, you know, uh, we did, um, from the beginning, we reached out to Nicholson's team to make sure they were aware of the film, mm. uh, that it was happening at all, you know, because uh, there were a lot from the jump. I wanted the Kubrick estate to be uh, fine with what we were doing. I wanted King to be fine with it. Um, we didn't want to do anything that the people um, who were involved with the original film would uh, protest or feel bad about. Mm. Um, and so we we got from Nicholson's people, they said, you know, Jack is retired um, and had also, you know, turned down an invitation from Spielberg um, to step back into the world of The Shining when they were doing Ready Player One. Right, right, right. Um, and, uh, and my thought was, well, if he said no to Spielberg, <laughs> I expect he's probably going to say no to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, he loves Oculus, yeah. though. He wants to, <laughs> he wants yeah, to work yeah. with you after that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the, the answer we got was not surprising at all, which was that, you know, um, he's really, uh, he's grateful that we reached out. He wishes us well with the project. We have his blessing, but he's retired and, in and not, you know, mm. not interested in, 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 doing that anyway. Uh, and then, you know, we went through a bunch of different iterations of what we could do. Um, now I, the closest I'd seen, you know, to technology that seemed to indicate that, that it could be used was a deep fake that came out while we were in post. Uh, that was Jim Carrey. Yeah. I mean, yeah. onto it. And I was like, Oh my God, that was really good. Yeah. Uh, but at the time when we were doing this, we hadn't seen any evidence that the technology was there. And the only comp we could point to was star Wars. Mm. And we were talking about Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing mm. and how that I, I found myself, um, scrutinizing the technology instead of following the story when that happened in those films. It didn't look right. It wasn't there yet. It didn't look, it was uncanny somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our decision was let's avoid the tech, 
people are going to scrutinize the choice no matter what. So let's avoid um, the technical scrutiny and instead just commit to um, the same approach we're using with the hotel itself, uh, with the other actors um, that we want to remind people of the Kubrick film without simply just copying and pasting it. Mm. And um, that way, you know, Alex Esso's performance, while evoking so many notes of Shelley Duvall that I love to see, is still very much Alex's performance. Mm-hmm. He plays a, a different Wendy in that respect. And, and with Henry, the exciting thing for him wasn't the jack of it. Like when I called him and said like, hey, like I have a part that I, I, I have in mind for you, but you might not want it. Um, you know, Henry said what, what drew him into it finally was that he was playing Lloyd. That mm. you know, much like... Cool. Uh, yeah. That and he keeps reminding... The audience mm-hmm. that oh I, I'm just Lloyd I'm just here to serve you your drink yeah yeah it's interesting yeah and 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 that that was very freeing and and that we felt was actually Kubrick's decision when when he how he handled Delbert Grady this idea that the caretaker who is absorbed by the hotel just becomes part of the staff mm-hmm. and denies any relationship mm-hmm. to their previous life and it was like that's what Delbert did and he said no 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 you're mistaking me for someone else up until a point and he only really showed his face once and and so for henry his thing was like i'm playing lloyd up until the very end and then i'm only jack for like a second um mm. which took the pressure off henry but uh it was a it was a crazy thing now i have not seen the deep fake that you mentioned uh that they put jack over henry mm. um I would be so fascinated to see that. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go like chase it down as soon as we're done. Nice. That, um, I mean, I, I, that would come the closest I, I expect to the way the scene looked in my head when, when I was writing it. That's what I saw. The it honestly that- doesn't look that different than, cause I feel like Henry there, I mean, especially the way you shot it in the profile, it, it, it looks very Nicholson-esque. Like, I feel like the biggest compliment I can give you is a deep fake. It doesn't look that different than what you guys did. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a relief. <laughs> Henry looks, you know, not a ton like Jack, but enough that we thought we could get away with it. It's how you shoot it. It's the side profile. It, it, it sells everything. So you don't give the front till later. It's perfect. I think you did a perfect job with it. Mike, there's even the moment when um, <clears throat> Danny is going through the rooms and, and almost having mental flashbacks really quickly that the scream that Alex gives when the ax goes through the door, I, I would have bet that was, you just use Shelly again. Like it looks that close. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that was an incredible. No, she's, she did the same thing. Her, the first scene we shot on the first day of, of the movie was um, uh, Danny and Dick Halloran on the, on the bench at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, which was so much fun. And, and Carl Lonely was so great. And like, it was a, a great way to start our, our experience of making the movie. But Alex running across the street and she just let loose of this Danny, you know, like yeah. I, on the very first day <laughs> yeah, yeah. and kind of all of us went like, wow. Um, like she, she had a, a knack for channeling um, so much of, of that Shelley Duvall right. performance. Um, but that the, the thing of her in the corner with the ax, like she just did that. And we were all just, bowled over she's, so she's glad, really remarkable i'm glad you brought up dick because we had written something on cinema blend um about you doing a, a halloran script uh is that how far along did you get on that and um now that the movie is is finding a bigger audience like we're thrilled that people are coming to it on dvd and streaming like 
Are you holding out hope that maybe that could become a story that develops down the line? I am. Yeah. And, and that story I loved. Uh, we, we actually had a, quite a bit worked out for that one. Yeah. Um, I, I think there was, um, you know, and that was, that was meant to be kind of the thing I went right into off of Dr. Sleep. Mm. Um, you know, we were all very disappointed with, with what happened when it was released with, with how it performed. Mm. And I think you're right. Like the last week, um, less than a week, it feels like the movie finally opened, mm. you know, oh, it's, wow. it's been really weird. Um, and uh, there was always this hope, you know, in the, in the disappointment of, of that weekend. And I think back to like when we were at, at you know, at, at the Stanley Jake, yeah. Like that was before that was back when hopes were really high and, yeah. and there was a lot of confidence with, with Warners and, and um, the, uh, the feeling when it came out was so profoundly disappointing and deflating, I think for, for everybody, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and Warners to their enormous credit never came back and pointed at me and, and was like, you know, well, what do you expect with your two and a half hour movie? Like there was none of that. There was all just like, we made the movie we wanted to make. We still believe in it. Um, who knows why things work and don't work. Uh, but the only person who kind of at the time really kept their chin up was Stephen King. Um, and that weekend he said, you know, I love the movie. And I remember when The Shining bombed and I remember when Shawshank bombed and I remember, you know, and it just started to list off and believe me, I'm not trying to put this movie in the company of those movies at all. But, it belongs there. But yeah, um, I'll say it. It belongs I, there. It's a, ma- it's a masterpiece. <laughs> we really believe that. Uh, but yeah. I, I, I thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'll, I'll ever be able to, to put it up on, on any kind of shelf in my mind like that, just having, I'm just too close. I, I think time will hopefully tell. It would be great if, if it enjoyed that kind of audience love mm-hmm. over time. Um, but he said at the time, he, he said, you know, give this a little bit of time because the audience for it is out there. Mm-hmm. And over, over my long career, what I've seen is that, you know, uh, they find these things and yeah. they pick them back up. So don't read anything into this weekend um, or into the, you know, domestic run or the international run. Just don't like, it's all, all about time and you know this this past week has been kind of the first time since then where we've looked back and been like i think king might have been onto something there um Mm. because nobody really expected the 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 recent enthusiasm for it which has been so great and the actors all reached out you know ewan was trending on saturday on twitter and and Mm. uh and i felt so good for uh kylie Curran who played Abra. Mm, yeah. um, and this was her first movie. And she, this week, is just really basking in a lot of, of what we had hoped for her from the beginning. And, Gosh, she's and she was kind of denied. So, yeah, I love, I She love makes her scene. breaks the movie. Yeah, yeah. It, it only works with if she works. And I love her scene of when she's Ewan. And she's like, I am yeah. hungover. And yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she yeah. plays that so well. She yeah, has so much fun with that, too. That's a great, great scene. <laughs> but I, I think to your to your original question, you know, a lot of the a lot of the plans and the enthusiasm that we had for Halloran and, and for and for other things as well, kind of coming off of this, cooled off very understandably with the studio after it was released. But I think we're learning um, that that paradigm shift between uh, theatrical and streaming that mm. everyone has seen coming in the industry. And mm. I think people thought they had another five years to really adjust 
their studio model to, you know, to change with those times. I think it's already happened. And, and mm-hmm. I would expect you'll hear a lot of people at Warner say the same, that, you mm-hmm. know, a movie that would potentially have performed theatrically even five years ago, it won't anymore. And, and uh, streaming has changed everything. So I think as more people find this film and as it hopefully continues to perform well on HBO Max in particular, where it's really kind of popping, Um, you know, that I think opens up a number of avenues for other stories we could tell. And Halloran, um, is absolutely something that I would love to, to put energy back into. Um, is it disconnected totally from the Torrances? Is it its own thing? It it was very much its own thing. Um, Hmm. you know, it, it, it was, uh, I I don't want to spoil anything. No. At the same time, I'm like. I'm like, hmm, but maybe if this doesn't happen, it'd be fun to talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> come back. Yeah, it, it, yeah we'd love to have you I'd be happy to come back. Um, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be honored to come back. I, I think, um, you know, Halloran was always more about, um, was about Dick as a younger man learning about The Shining, you know, uh, and mm. it, it, uh, the Doctor Sleep novel tees up a prologue for it perfectly with the story mm. of, of um, his, his grandmother and his grandfather, right. Which he tells a little bit of in, in this, but, um, but the idea was to kind of um, to, to open with him, uh, you know, as Carl Lumley um, and then to find a way to go back into the past and kind of tell this other story that inevitably would very much in the way Dr. Sleep did inevitably bring us back to, you know, a, a familiar hotel. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know what would do with it. I, I love it though. And, and it was something we were really excited about. So I hope, I hope there's a new life for it out there somewhere. That's awesome. Yeah. We oh. hope so too, because we love this movie. I'm, I, and I'm only going to mention this real fast. Cause you mentioned ready player one. We ha- we just wanted to get your thoughts on what Spielberg did with the overlook and that recreation of what, like what, as a fan of the shining, when you saw that, like, what were your thoughts on, on seeing Spielberg do that? Uh, it was the first time I felt like Dr. Sleep was going to work. Um, oh, cool! I, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I heard a rumor that that was featured in the film. We were already kind of down the road on getting started in prep, and so we went opening weekend to see it in the theater. Very nervous because there's this thing of like, what are they going to do with it? If it's what we're going to do with it, and we got to change what we're going to do with it, and you know, like there's a lot of there's a lot of trepidation whenever somebody's kind of stepping into the same territory. Um, and so uh, I, I went in um, and and. Uh, got a big popcorn and sat in the theater in a very crowded theater, actually. And the entire mood of the theater changed completely the moment the hotel was on screen. Right. Um, right. And it was immersive, but the, the whole, the air changed. Yeah. And there was an electric excitement to it and a recognition. Um, and that was a predominantly digital overlook, mm. which I think they did a really, and, and worked very well for the conceit of that movie, you know? And so for me, it was like, I, I loved the feeling I got being in that space, being in those locations you know, even in that digital expression of it. Um, mm. And I looked around and looked at the audience and the grins on, on their faces. Like some of these people in this theater had never seen the Overlook Hotel on a screen that size. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to me, it was like, okay, this, this reinforces the fact that there is a beautiful thing that happens when you put that location mm. on a big screen. Right. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a palpable and mysterious effect that, you know, fans of the shining know all too well, especially if you've been lucky enough to see it projected properly. 
Um, But that space becomes a character of its own, I think, because even if you watched the movie on a 19 inch TV as a kid, the overlook was built in your head. It was built in your imagination and it burrows in and it stays there and you can summon uh, the texture of it, the look of that, that incredible place years later without having seen it recently. It's that powerful. So when you see the Overlook Hotel on a big screen, as Kubrick designed it, it's like stepping into your own memory. Mm. Um, and, you know, that I think, you know, uh, when Gabe was at, at, at the location itself, I expect he had a similar feeling like, like you're walking into, you know, specifically walking into a memory, a childhood experience and, and something that's only existed in your imagination. It's a very profound thing. Gabe, come on, yeah. tell us. Wake, punch in here. <laughs> yeah, Gabe. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah. No, well, hey, well, where am I? Hey! Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I actually, it's an incredible, it was an incredible experience. I, I, I waited uh, to tell these guys until they saw the movie because I don't even know what was in the trailer or what, what they would possibly know just because it's such a special thing to think that we're going to go back there. Um, but I told them as soon as they saw it, I was like, I have to tell you, I've been holding this for so long. I was inside the Colorado lounge, you know, I, <laughs> I walked around these, uh, the steps and the, and the hallways. And it's exactly that. It's a thing that you like a memory. You would never expect to revisit it physically. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible. Right down to when the first time you show Danny's boxes, you place them in the maze, right? And yep. the maze is such a visual cue. That even and for my wife, again, who's a very casual Shining fan, you know, the first time you show Danny's box, she was like, oh, my God, that's the maze from the from the Shining. And I was like, yeah, just just wait, <laughs> just wait. You're going to see a whole heck of a lot more. Um, Mike, I, I, we're really keeping you over. And could, do you mind if we just go one more round? One more round. Yeah, round? No problem. Well, yeah. Okay. Uh, thank well, you here. so Let's much. Do it. For, yeah, for, we uh, really appreciate you. Super. And, yeah. Yeah. This is, a, right, this, um, is a, this is a special movie for all three of us. We love this film. So this is all coming from the genuine our hearts. So we appreciate uh, you doing this. Jakey, why don't you go and then Kevin will go and then I'll, I'll kind of end it. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about uh, you, you mentioned earlier in the interview about like the conspiracies and how there are so many like different thoughts of like, well, did Kubrick do, do this or did he plant this in there? And, you know, I watch uh, the, the Room 237 and 90% of the, the conspiracy theories, I sort of went like, OK, like, all right, like, sure. Like you're you're looking into a little too much. But then some of them. Um, uh, in, in particular, and I know Sean wanted to talk about this too, um, what the, the, the dog, uh, uh, giving the blowjob represented it, it might end up, it, it might, might represent, represent. <laughs> that's, that's, that's never a sentence I thought I would ever say. First but off, the, is it a dog or a bear? Or a bear, the bear man or the dog? I, I can't remember. But, what but is that, it? The, but the, a lot of people thought that that, that I just thought it was a bear. Um, but that people thought that that represented that maybe Jack Torrance, uh, sexually abused Danny. And, and then they talked about how like the, the, the the Playgirl magazine he's reading has an article about incest. And so I kind of started thinking like, oh, maybe there is some truth to that. So I'm sort of curious about your thoughts about all the conspiracies surrounding it. And then specifically that one. Look, I, I find them, I find them fascinating. Uh, you know, I, and I, I'm kind of with you. There's a bunch of them where I'm like, come on, but yeah. it's really fun, you know? And I, and I think it, it's a testament to the power of the film that, it, it ignites that kind of imagination in people. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to the, to the blowjob ghost scene, I've never understood it. I don't get it. There's something about it that's so overtly and strangely taboo 
mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, even down to the, you know, the costume ass flap, <laughs> you know, like, yes. it's, uh, there's something about it that kind of takes this, you know, this hotel that is painted with this veneer of this beautiful classic kind of roaring, you know, uh, deco twenties thing. And then just kind of randomly throws this idea in that if you're a ghost who's trapped here, you're just indulging in kind of the most primal instincts that that you can. And that as much as there's violence, because, you know, there's a pornographic kind of element to, to Mrs. Massey coming out of the tub nude and to, um, you know, a, a different kind of porn- pornography with the violence and the blood in, in the halls. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the kind of bizarre skeletons in the lobby that start to feel kind of Disney ride and almost like the ghosts are putting on a, a putting on like a display, <laughs> you know, like it's very mm-hmm. like, these ghosts are bizarre. I don't know what it means, but it paints this picture of this kind of endless timeless you know cycle of various kinds of abuse violence and sensory indulgence you know mm-hmm. um you know i i've i certainly am intrigued by the ideas of jack jack's abusive parenting mm. you know having more of an effect on danny than we're overtly told um, and of wendy who is the one who witnesses this, mm-hmm. you know, of Wendy kind of having that repressed idea within her own head. It does not jive with the Jack Torrance on the page in The Shining, in the novel, which mm-hmm. is why I have a hard time tilting there. Uh, he's mm-hmm. the baseline for me for the character, you know. Um, is that why you didn't bring that character back from Kubrick's Shining, whenever they all kind of gather together at the, you know, at the bottom of the stairs? I was looking for the bear. I was looking for the yes, uh, although we we debated it, and and there was a version of like, what would it look like if out of all of these ghosts, you know, in this row, there was one in the pair costume <laughs> that would just kind of be like. <laughs> and the thing that killed the thing that killed me on that was there's kind of an overhead shot as they all descend on yeah. rows, and my feeling was that it would just be ass, like because if we if we if we kept <laughs> the continuity, ass. yeah, um, <laughs> unless we changed. The story point about that flap being yeah. open, it would just be this big ass sticking up. So I, I, I selfishly didn't want to, you know, have that kind of infiltrate the big climactic battle of the movie. Um, oh, but, that's funny. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of the other things we lean directly into, like the same Playgirl issue that, uh, that Jack reads in the lobby in The Shining, um, Dan is reading um, mm. in the hospice in the middle of the film when really Azriel the cat jumps up on, onto the counter and he's yeah, like, Oh yeah. no, you got your signals wrong. I, he's reading the not, exact same issue. I did not catch that. Oh Sean, did you God. catch that? No, not at all. No. Wow. Yeah. We had to track it down. Um, and it, it had to be the exact, I wanted it to be the exact one. And uh, Ewan was really excited about that. Oh, Mike, you That's got some awesome. OCD in you, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like we, we, yeah, it was very, it was quite a time. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, you know, we were talking, you know, there, there were conversations about a lot of the conspiracy theories and other things that are kind of buried in The Shining. And we didn't agree among the crew and the cast, which is healthy and fun, you know, um, mm-hmm. as to what we thought it could really be. But, uh, but yeah, so in particular, um, it would have it been something to, to try to put that particular ghost in. 
I just think from a blocking point of view, it would have just been way more, way more ass cheek than, than the audience. would have <laughs> Talk about them swarming on Rose though. I love the visual of overhead of the true not swarming on somebody um, who has just passed, you know, that, that makes them feel most like vampires to me of how quickly they move to get that steam. That was, that's another, yet another unnerving visual that you put into your film. There's also something really truly hor- horrifying about like they're going up her face, like the face of the person going in the skin. Um, um, so my last yeah. question is going to be, um, this will be my last question. Then Sean will go and then we'll, we'll end. We, we appreciate your time. Oh my God. But thank I, you so much for going long. Yeah, seriously. But I really wanted to tell you something that meant a lot to me. Uh, as I rewatched the film last night with my wife, um, I think my favorite scenes in the movie are weirdly enough, the scenes as he's, as he's watching, as he's with people, as they pass you and yeah. his character. And you're going back to what Sean said earlier about like him having that major monologue later on in front of, you know, in front of Jack. It's an interesting thing because it's the internal moments of Ewan's performance that really blew my mind. Like, like, like the sweetness of his character as people are dying next to him. So I just wanted to say like, that was something that really affected me as a viewer. I thought those were really super powerful moments while not like flashy moments. They were very intimate and, and, and uh, I just felt them on a very emotional deep level as a viewer. That's not my question, but I just, I just wanted to tell you that before you got off the uh, call. Here, know, look, so. Thank you. Thank you. And you and I think would, would thank you too. Those are some of his favorite, favorite, yeah. favorite bits. Um, thank you for saying that. No, uh, I really, and, and if you, yeah. There and, are and more in the director's don't cut. Don't use that as your question. Yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> say that in lieu of your question. There are more in the director's cut, aren't there? Is there additional ones? There are. Okay. Uh, it was, oh, they're they're extended. It's okay. it's um the the second scene in particular with Charlie goes on longer. Okay. Um, and that was stuff that I was I was really sad to see go from the theatrical because to Is me that that's, that's where the title song? comes from. Is yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. Um, and everything before that when he talks about, um, you know how uh, he can see his twin sons and he can see, you know the uh, he can see the, I think it was the the little red wagon. Yeah. The um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It, the little details of that, that kind of like, and he says at one point, like all his, all his memories are laid out in front of him, like a deck of cards out of mm-hmm. order and little, little note, little things like that, that make me kind of feel like this is a beautiful way to look at death. Right. Oh. Um, and yeah. uh, you know, that's the stuff that makes King King to me. Um, you know, we, we were, we were always fighting to make sure that none of that, was going to go out because usually the very quiet scenes with, you know, with the old man dying are going to be the first ones people mm. are going to be like, maybe, maybe get out of there and go to the astral projection sooner. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, th- those are some of Ewan's big moments on set. And he, the actors who played those dying men were wonderful. And, and yeah, they were, it was some of the most generous I was, I've seen Ewan. He was really, uh, really he took wonderful care of his scene partners there yeah the cathartic nature of that first guy uh as he's like super terrified of dying and then that relief he gives him when the uh, i want to say the older guy goes i can see my wife and i'm getting like the hair on my arms is standing up literally as i'm telling you that um i just love those moments all right so my final question for you is this uh you are in a very unique position to be the only director who's ever continued this story in, in cinema. I mean, in regards to like the shining now it's Dr. Sleep you're the only other director besides Kubrick who really continued this story from a cinematic perspective in this regard. Um, so I'm actually interested to know for you now, when you watch the shining, how different the shining plays for you as a filmmaker who made the continuous story, 
Um, is there a scene that plays different? Because your your film, I don't necessarily think of it as a sequel. It's more of a, it's it's a continuation and more of a companion piece that fills in the that storyline. Uh, I was just interested to know if The Shining changes for you now as a, as a viewer because you have that opportunity to have continued it yourself. Oh, uh, certainly. And and the amount of time that we spent with The Shining, kind of all of us, you know, watched it. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of times ad nauseum in, in prep. Um, there are certain sequences of The Shining that are enhanced for me in a pretty amazing way because I've, I've actually had to fight to try to get a lens exactly where he got a lens. Mm. And I know the challenges of the light coming through the windows in the Colorado Lounge. I know the challenges of trying to block on the staircase. I know how difficult it is to try to, you know, achieve how you have to break up that steady cam maneuver in order to kind of take, uh, in our case, Rose, in his case, Jack, you know, all the way from the typewriter and up the stairs. You know, I, I, there's a lot of forensic things to me mm-hmm. that, that change those sequences because I've, I've had to take them apart kind of almost a frame at a time. Um, what's amazing, though, is that the mystique of the film is, has been enhanced. Like there's, there's a sense when you make a movie that you'll never kind of be able to lose yourself in it the way a viewer can. Mm-hmm. And I've found that to be very true. You know, each one of you has had a completely different experience with Dr. Sleep than I'm capable of having. And I would argue that yours is probably mm-hmm. more fun. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and um, with The Shining, taking it apart and being able to examine it forensically has not taken away that suspension of disbelief and immersion in I can still get lost in the movie. And to me, that's evidence of its genius because even the, even a film I adore that I see it enough times that I'm, I'm evaluating it on a technical level. I'm, I'm never an audience member again for that movie. Um, the shining hasn't felt that way for me. I, I still get chills. Uh, I still feel that kind of part of my imagination activated by the film, I still feel the grip of the filmmaker around my neck. Um, I felt that from your hand. I feel like you were grabbing my neck the whole movie. I'm so glad to hear that though, because you spend so much time on it. I, I'm, you get afraid that you get to a point where you're like, I don't ever want to see the shining again. You know? Right. (laughs) I was afraid of that. And we would say it, it's like, well, we're going to ruin the shining for ourselves forever, you know? Uh, but that's not what happened. And and I, I know it's true for, for Trevor Macy and, and, for Feminari and for uh, the actors too, we talk about it, how we still enjoy the movie and even, even more so. I think like if you talk to Alex Esso or you talk to Henry, you know, their appreciation now having gone through and forensically taken apart someone else's performance. Yeah. You know, uh, Alex has an incredible kind of perspective on Shelley Duvall and, and on her approach to Wendy that no one else in the world, I imagine, uh, could come close to having. Um, you know, I think she gets a fraction, a, a small fraction of what Shelley Duvall was able to, to get. And, and we get a small fraction of what Alex gets. So it's, right. it's a very interesting, you know, kind of Russian doll. But when did um, you properly revisit it? When did you properly revisit the film? Like, like, like a, a, a away from Dr. Sleep movie comes out, it's done. Final cut. It's out there. Did you have like a rich, not a ritualized version? But did, you, did you sit down one night and go, all right, I'm going to take the shining in aside from everything I've done. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, it's when they released the 4K UHD. Nice. Um, and and I said, I haven't seen this. And I've seen The Shining a million times at that point. Mm. 
Um, and so when that disc came out, you know, we were already done with Dr. Sleep and, right. and, uh, to me, and we had watched the whole cast and crew, you know, we kicked off, uh, everything in Atlanta when we were getting ready to start shooting with, with, uh, Warner brothers rented the theater, the same theater Rose and Crow are at where they're playing Casablanca. We used oh, it cool. location too. Yeah. We, we rented the theater and they, they, they projected the shining for us. Um, yeah. Cause I'm from Long Island. And uh, that title yeah, card, not that is not Long Island. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Nothing looks quite as beautiful. Not even close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be we, a bagel we, we, shop on one side <laughs> and a pizza joint on the other. <laughs> we, could, we could rebuild the Colorado Lounge, but we couldn't get Long Island right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we, uh, we, we all watched the movie there and, and you know, all, all had a, a very interesting experience with it kind of from, you know, we are about to die, salute you kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and even after all of that and all the forensic work that we'd done, and we had, we had the shining on tablets and laptops on set. We were referencing it constantly. It was always up somewhere, you know, we'd stills from it printed out all over the production offices. Um, even after all of that, when the 4k disc came out, I was like, I get to go see the shining in a new way. And it was like, it's, it's, you know, it's a beautiful format and um, it was lovely to see it at a level of, of clarity and, and, and restored in a way that wasn't available to me the previous year while we were prepping. Like, so it, the beauty of how films are kept alive over a long period of time is, is a wonderful thing. Um, I love that you mentioned a movie theater uh, because I do want to ask you really quickly uh, that you were talking about the, on the King cast, being able to bring Dr. Sleep to Stephen King in Bangor and I, the, I have this shirt because I bought it in that gift shop that's in Bangor. Uh, that's a great shirt. That the guy had, um, he had all the manuscripts in his basement that got wa- flooded out. And I want to know, is it, the, is it the multiplex that's next to the Chinese restaurant where he and Tabitha eat? Is that the same one you were in? Yes, I believe that is exactly it. Yeah, because it's, they, it's... They took us there to see Dark Tower, which was the point of us being up there. We did the Stephen King tour. And then we ended yeah. to watch Dark Tower and, and he showed up. He like came in the theater and we got to do a Q&A and it was like yes. six or seven of us. And they didn't tell us he was coming and he just came in and he had a baseball cap on and he sat down at a table and he took the hat off and put it on the table and he goes, well, I guess we're going to start talking. And <laughs> and the best part about it is it was well, so Wampler, Scott Wampler from KingCast was one of the guys who was with us. So it was all King aficionados and none of us dropped the ball like we didn't have questions prepped but we were like shit we got 30 minutes with stephen king let's go kind of thing and it was just an amazing opportunity when you mentioned the theater going up there and him renting it out i was like it has to be the same one that we got to go to so and and he said he was like this is where i like to do all of the stuff when it comes in he had had seen it there Mm -hmm. i think he mentioned dart tower there like that's his theater and that's where he goes to see just whatever is out on a weekend that he wants the chinese restaurant reminds me so much of um the, the one that they go to in it chapter two, you in know, it too? When, yeah. when the adults show up. So it, it looks very much like that with the neon glow. Uh, but I'm going to detour away from uh, Dr. Sleep. Thank you for all the time you gave us with this. Of course. Uh, to, to me, um, Hill House is, is one of the most masterful pieces of art. Episode six that I've seen. Not just, not just that the totality oh, of it yeah. um, is, is completely devastating to me. I've watched it start to finish three different times. Um, the cast is incredible. The, the payoffs that you have that you weave through it, it is it is a true piece of art. It's it's genius. 
and um, I'm I'm terrified that you're going to do a second season um, because I think I feel uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> so um, I, I am going to just trepidatiously ask you um, what we can expect from Bly Manor. Is it a continuation of? Is it something totally different? Like without giving away any sort of secrets or spoilers, just ease my mind a little bit about where you are with Bly Manor. Bly Manor. Absolutely. Uh, so it is it is uh, a completely different thing. Okay. Um, it's, it's based entirely on, uh, not just the turn of the screw by Henry James, but on a number of other Henry James stories as well. Okay. He, he actually has some really great ghost stories and we've kind of been able to fold them all into one new story. Um, you'll see a lot of familiar faces from Hill House, but they're all completely recontextualized. Okay. And, and, um, so it's, 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 it's a true anthology series now. Um, you know, I never had initially intended on uh, ever revisiting the Crane family. I, I thought we were definitively done with them. Right, right. Uh, and I was really glad to, really glad that there was not uh, any pressure to to do anything other than that when when it became clear that the show warranted a, another season. Um, I can tell you that right before, I'm talking 10 minutes before I logged on to this, um, I was in a virtual mix session where we were finishing the final sound mix on uh, the season finale. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah. So we're getting close. Um, so if season uh, yeah, two I, is delayed, it's because of how long this talk went, is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they're, yeah. all, they're all waiting for yeah. me to come back. It's our fault. <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, season two, as I, you know, I don't expect it to be delayed one bit. We, we didn't really miss a step, believe it or not. We, we had already wrapped before the whole COVID shutdown hit all the productions. Mm. Um, we had a couple of weeks where we had to kind of figure out how to continue post remotely. Um, but my post team also, you know, who I've been with now my whole career, uh, they cracked it real fast and we've been doing everything on, on these virtual, you know, virtual sessions. Uh, and the season, um, I love it. It's, uh, it's, it evokes, a lot of things about Hill House that I that I love and am proud of, while very much being its own thing. Um, I think fans of the show, you know, you get that feeling where you're worried about like something that you like gets kind of lessened somehow. Sure. Um, if you dip back into the well, the wrong way or one mm -hmm. too many times, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a different well, and it was specifically to prevent that. So, um, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool though. Um, uh, I think Netflix uh, they haven't they haven't announced when it's coming out. They're so mysterious um, in terms of they really they are. They've they've got their own plan, but we we've been you know jamming through post. It's been going great. Um, it's definitely later this year. It's okay. not going to get kicked off into into twenty twenty one or anything. Um, and uh, everything's on schedule. I'm really I'm really excited for you guys to see it. Oh my god! Um, and I want to hear what you think of it. Um, in respect to season one, because one Will of you the please come back. Can you please come back on our show when it drops? Yes, please. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we yes. would love to have you back. Um, you know, uh, Kevin mentions episode six, and everybody talks about the unbroken shot. But whenever I get to it and 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 get immersed in it, um, it's not the technicality of it; it's the performances. Like I can't imagine how much they had to memorize uh, to to deliver all the lines. You give them so much dialogue <laughs> in, in that scene. And I can't imagine how many times that they messed a line Ugh. or made you have to reset. Yeah. Well, it, it was funny. The actors, you know, they were very terrified of being the reason why we have to reset. 
Yeah. It almost never happened. Like oh, they, really? they were drilling that episode. You know, we had the, the scripture that episode was done long before we shot the pilot. Mm. So we started rehearsing, the crew started rehearsing for that episode before we shot the pilot and the actors would meet regularly um, while we shot the first five episodes, they'd meet on weekends and evenings to rehearse six. Wow. Okay. It was like, it was like a play. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, but they were to, to a person, no one wanted to be the reason why a shot was abandoned because right. at a, if you drop a line or, you know, something goes wrong and you call cut, you just have to start over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was awful for all of us. Like, cause that, that episode required about 150 people to perform a choreographed kind of thing, every take and down to like the, um, you know, some of the people that emerged as the most incredible heroes of that were like our dolly grip who had to pull yeah. out a 175 point turn on the peewee dolly for that 17 minute take. You know, we were relying on crew members who typically aren't put in a position of that much immediate pressure. Um, where it's like, if you're pulling off just a camera move and it's, ah, we didn't get that one, we'll go back and go again. It's not yeah. a big deal. Yeah. But if you're 13 minutes into a 17 minute take, oh, yeah. the world, you know? Uh, and so. Well, Sam Mendes yeah. talked to us for 1917, Sam Mendes. And, <laughs> and he said there were certain times where you just had to be like, all right, that's good enough. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not we, going to stop for that. This is a, this is something that they might mess up in that scene anyway. So let's just roll with it kind of thing. Oh yeah. No. And we would do the same. It, you know, we, uh, I was sitting in the tent, uh, which is just off behind the wall in the funeral home for all those shots mm -hmm. uh, next to the DP. And we, everything we could do is already done. Like we're powerless once action happens on a shot like that. And we would sit there. And if you saw, like, if you saw, cause grips and, and crew members were pulling chairs out of the way and putting yeah. them back and yeah. carrying bounce cards and flags and lighting cues in the ceiling. We have hundreds of wow. cues for every shot. Um, if you saw like a crew member like ah for a second in the frame and ran out, we'd look at each other like, can we paint? Can we paint him out? We can paint him. Yeah. Keep going, and we would do this like you know this thing of how oh. big of a deal is it? There's in that 17 minute one, which was our our hardest shot. You can see um, they go up on their lines for just a second, and um, hmm. Timothy Hutton at one point stops kind of takes a beat. He's sitting in the front of the shot. All the kids are behind him. And he's starting to tell the story and he stops because he, he just tripped on the line a little. Okay. And he stops and he turns and he looks over his shoulder and he's looking at me. He's looking at the tent um, on the other side of the wall because he thought we would cut. Um, and we and you didn't. were like, go. <laughs> but he, didn't, he didn't know what I knew, which was that the dolly was breaking and the chain was about to break on it. Okay. Um, and we only had one take left. <laughs> Uh, before the equipment was going to break down. Um, oh my God. I didn't no know that. Yeah. I, well, I, I thought that would just kill them. That would be the, that would be the level of pressure they'd never recover from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he looks back and he realizes we aren't going to cut and he just goes, mm -hmm, and then keeps going. Uh, and there's wow, like bro. That. that's a pro. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, totally. Uh, there's another Henry Thomas at the end of the episode and we did, the logistical shot that was the hardest is the last segment, which has got all the windows breaking and the storm yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah. And we chase Henry. That's that had the elevator that brought us down mm -hmm. after all that. And we only got it right one time. It's like, we, we, we had a safety take, you know, um, he's walking to, to, uh, to the kid at one point. Um, no, it's the end of the first shot. I'm sorry. Not the last one, the first one. Okay. He's walking to see little Luke and he steps on a flashlight 
and almost trips, uh, like almost roll and it's completely full frame. You see his foot hit it and he kind of has to catch himself from falling um, and just rolled with it. Uh, and you Literally. see the light get kicked off. Yeah, just kept <laughs> going. And because um, he knew we were right at the end of the shot. Right. And so it's like little shit like that happened all over the place that we were just like, good enough. Um, it'll be what it is. You're going to try uh, to top it in blind manner? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you, I can tell you <laughs> explicitly. Um, <laughs> yes, do not expect us to even attempt. <laughs> um, they're just going to... Rapid uh, cuts, just, rapid cuts. Yeah. It's a Michael Bay approach <laughs> to, uh, to horror. <laughs> Oh yeah. Like I, I told him, you know, I was like, I'm not interested in ever doing that again. I feel like I, I don't have anything else to prove. And, and, um, and the, uh, the other directors in season two, the other big difference on season two is, you know, I'm not directing him, all of them, um, okay. which has been great. I loved it. Uh, it's been, it's such, such a weird new thing for me. Um, but producing them, you know, the other directors, a few of them would want to do long oneers, And I would be like, are you sure? Uh, because just speaking as as a executive producer and, and showrunner now, my priorities are very different. And my yeah. thing is like, I don't think you're going to make your day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. so like it was it was really interesting kind of being like, I really want you guys not to actively avoid trying to go down that road this season because um, it almost killed the show last time. And I don't yeah. want to kill Bly. So um so yeah, it's it's the whole thing's very strange and and fun. But I hope you guys dig it. And I and oh, die, I will absolutely come back and talk about it if you want yes. to ask me. No, you, uh, you can come back anytime you want, honestly. Uh, and we cannot wait yeah. to see Blind Manor. And and the reveal of the broken neck lady makes me cry. Ah, I mean, every yeah. single time, every yeah. single. Time. And it's it's so it, it's now become one of those things. And I'm sure you have a few of these too, where you can't wait to show it to other people. And yeah, the minute yeah, that you yeah. get close to the reveal, like I, I turned to my wife and I was just <laughs> watching her react. <laughs> she just burst out in tears. So thank you. Thank you Aww. so much for that. And, and look, thank you for all of this, Mike, honestly. This yes. has been so amazing to allow us to go deep dive on a, on a film that we love on, on Shining and, uh, and on Dr. Sleep, obviously, and, uh, and all your work over the years. It's been tremendous. We can't wait to, uh, you know, Jake read Revival. I, haven't read, I just ordered uh, Revival on Amazon. I haven't read it yet. Dude, so. you're going to kill it, man. You're absolutely going to kill it. Isn't that fun? It's uh, oh my uh, god! It's so uh, it's 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 unlike it's 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 a different king, which is which is a yes. lot of fun. It is like cynical king. It is like yeah. dark king. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's what I I am so in love with about it. It's brutal, but man, it's fun. Do you know when you'll get to start shooting that? I don't. Uh, you know, it, we're still really early. Like you know, okay. the, I'm still. I just turned in the first draft. Okay. And um, and am am kind of. I don't even know what the theatrical industry looks like right yeah, now i know you know um so so yeah i i have no idea uh you know i'm with the same executives at warner brothers that i was with um for dr sleep uh okay. who are phenomenal like wonderful collaborators mm -hmm. um uh, kevin mccormick and courtney valenti there uh mm -hmm. who are just wonderful partners um so i know that they you know they very much want to do right you know by by this project uh, we got to see what the world looks like at this point, yeah. what the industry looks yeah. like. Sure. Um, yeah, I can see the poster now, Revival, starring Jacob Tremblay. Jacob Tremblay. I'm just glad Jacob Tremblay's out there in the world now. Like, oh, that's really God. exciting for me. That actually, I got to get you guys a picture of Jacob. Um, that was actually I I can get a, you a very... Picture of oh, please oh, do. Please. Please do.
I'll we would love that. Take a picture. That yeah. would be amazing. <laughs> I, I, I find it disturbing article. that over the course of this interview, I laughed hardest discussing Jacob Tremblay's awful death. <laughs> awful death. <laughs> it says a lot about you, Sean. It really does. It really I does. I say this as somebody who goes to, I, I see a therapist uh, once a week. It was actually therapeutic to laugh about it, to be yeah. honest. It actually helped me psychologically through that scene. So now I can actually watch it again and Think of fake of trembling. Okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, again, I'm, I'm Mike, very glad for that. At least, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, man. We really appreciate it, and uh, and please, we'll stay in touch because we would love to have you back when Bly drops, and um, and for anything that you do, you're and you're send welcome us that back photo. here. Yeah, and we're all we're yes. all about to get on Twitter and tweet about how good of a guy you are. So prepare for your inbox to blow up. Oh no, no, please, not that. Not, not, not positive <laughs> Twitter reinforcement, whatever you want to do. Um, no, thank you guys so much. And like, yeah. it's such a pleasure to chat with you guys. It's been such a blast. It's great to see you again. Uh, like, this is really just lovely. So please count me in uh, on, on anything else that's coming up. Thrilled to chat, Bly. Uh, and I will get you guys some fake up picks because. Um, yes. You'd, <laughs> You should you should be the chariot that takes fake up Tremblay out into the world for real. <laughs> Thank so, you. Cool. Well, if you ever want to kill me for, in one of your movies, I could be fake Hamilton and we can make it work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to start figuring out how to do that right now. Yes, a lot of people have been trying to figure out how to kill me. Thanks, Mike. Mike. Thank Talk you, to you soon. Take All it right. easy. All right, friends. Have a good one. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.